You may be seated. Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts. For those of you returning from vacation, uh, welcome back. It's good to see you. I know others will be making their way out throughout the summer. Uh, it's a part of the summer tradition, their summer routine, and uh, it's good to be able to get away for a bit. But as you're returning with me to the book of Acts, it is a gaping hole right here of individuals y'all are like camped out all through these areas and like we are not going to be in the front row <laughs> we are going to stay as back as far as we can bless your hearts i can still <laughs> reach that far back um a few words uh, before we dive into the book of acts um, on the supreme court's decision to overturn roe first praise god Praise God, uh, this is a monumental answer to prayer. This law was always unjust and needed to be overturned. Um, so let's be sure to give God praise. Two, this isn't the end. The fight for life continues for every man, woman, and child created in the image of God from womb to tomb. And it is a fight that will not be won exclusively um, in the electoral process or the halls of the U.S. Capitol or from a Supreme Court, but through the faithfulness of the church to stand for the truth, even if said truth goes against one's political party. And three, while the ruling was just, let us never be deceived into believing that political victories for either side of the aisle will bring the justice only Christ himself has and will deliver. This decision and the response to it is a continued reminder of the spiritual war that is raging all around us. And while we must continue to make Christ's name, Christ's name known to everybody until he returns, because our only hope in this life or the next is Christ. Brings about a longing through all that we see in this world, a longing for Christ to return. To which we as the church say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The more we look at the headlines, the more we see things unfold. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That cry in and of itself requires us to do what? Wait. Requires us to wait. Patiently and longingly 
waiting, which I'd argue is one of the hardest things in life for us to do, regardless of our age. Why? Because we, if we're being honest, are by and large an impatient people. We don't like to wait. If there's something that we're wanting, something that we're desiring, something that we're anticipating, maybe even something that we're fearing, one of the hardest things in the world for us to do is wait. Tell a child even, we're going to have dinner in one hour. Be patient and wait. What's the response, parents? I'm starving. <laughs> no, they're not. But that's the response, right? I'm starving. We're going to eat now. Can I have a snack? You're not starving. You may be bored. You may, in fact, be hungry. But you can wait one hour before we have dinner. What they don't want to do, what we don't want to do, is wait. But as we all know, waiting is a natural part of life. And it's a natural part of the Christian life. A perpetual waiting on the Lord's timing. Which, let's face it, it's not always easy, is it? To wait upon the Lord's timing. You think about all the various things in your life that you have wanted and longed for. Maybe even right now, and you're in this season of waiting and praying and longing and you don't know how long you're going to have to wait you don't even know if the prayers will be answered the way that you desire but you find yourself in the season of waiting see what we're looking at today in our text is a season of waiting it's the time period after christ's ascension and into when ascended into heaven and up into pentecost and the baptism of the Holy Spirit that they have been promised is going to come, which will start the church. So we can think of this group of people who are gathered together, waiting. You can think of them as a church planting team, if you will. <laughs> the soon-to-be charter members of the, the church of Jerusalem, the first church. They're waiting. They've been told by Jesus to Wait, chapter 1, verse 4, just a few verses back, they're told not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. They're told to wait for the baptism of the Spirit to come, which they're, they're told is going to happen, promised it's going to happen not many days from now. And what we want to look at today is what they do as they wait upon the Lord. Which in turn should give us some insight on how we can faithfully wait upon the Lord. And the first thing we see is, is what? We see that they were obedient. The very first thing we see, look with me at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. 
Now, just before these verses, we saw last week in verse 11, angels telling this group of people to, to quit staring into the sky. <laughs> Stop looking up at where Jesus has gone, saying, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Which means what? Now they're to quit staring up into the sky and to heed Jesus' words. Remain in Jerusalem and wait. And what do they do? They walk the thousand or so yards or quarter of a mile back into Jerusalem, back to the upper room where they were staying, and they begin to immediately wait and obediently wait. Waiting is what is in what is likely the very upper room they gathered in the night before Jesus' death. And with that, that, that room, think about this. Just think about the emotion. Think about the, the memories that are tied to that evening with Jesus in that upper room. What do you have taking place? We've got the implementing of the Lord's Supper. You have Jesus foretelling of Judas's betrayal. Now they know that has taken place. You have the apostles arguing among one another about who's going to be the greatest among them. Jesus telling them out of that, telling the apostles that they would eat and drink at his table in his kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That the 12 apostles are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel, something that at the time probably landed like a lead balloon in their understanding. Like, what in the world is he talking about? But as incredibly significant as what we're going to look at today. It was also where, in that room, where, where Jesus told Peter that he was going to deny him three times before the rooster crowed. And it was likely in this same room where Jesus appeared to them after rising from the dead. So needless to say, a great deal of emotion and memories are tied to this, to this room. And they're waiting there, which is giving them plenty of opportunity and time to, to reflect upon the past. Reflect upon failures and reflect, reflect upon what it was taught. But also time to consider the future and time to consider the cost of their obedience going forward facing the reality that those who killed Jesus would likely come after them if they remained obedient to Christ all Jesus had taught about the cost of discipleship was now beginning to click it was beginning to make sense to them but despite their past despite their previous misunderstandings despite all of their failures what do they do? They obediently go back to the room and they wait for the Spirit, just as Jesus had instructed. Which required what of them? What did their obedience require? Faith. Their obedience required faith. Their obedience was rooted in faith. Faith in the promises of God. Faith that God was going to send his spirit just like he promised. Faith that Christ 
was going to come again, just as they were told. Their waiting is an act of obedience, yes, but it's obedience that is rooted in faith. They would not be waiting if they did not have faith in the promises of God. Contrast that with Judas's disobedience. What did his disobedience result from? A lack of faith. See, some hear a call to obedience and they bristle. They don't like it. Sounds legalistic. Telling us, calling us to obey. And it is legalistic if our obedience is some sort of half-hearted attempt to earn God's favor. We can't do that. But biblical obedience is always an act of faith. We do what God tells us through his word because we have faith that he is going to do what he promises to do. And so, friends, I ask you this morning, does this describe you? Does this describe us, a a people living in faithful obedience to the Lord's command because we trust God's word? We have faith that his promises are going to become true. Second thing we see here is that they were small in number. Picking back up in the second part of verse 13, where Luke lists out who was present in the room. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So here's what we know about the size of this soon-to-be church in Jerusalem at this point. It's about 120 in number. That's it. 120 or so people. Considerably less than our average attendance on a Sunday morning gathering within this church. Which tells us what? They were very small in size. This is it. This is the church. Which is significant when we consider the massive crowds that accompanied Jesus during his earthly ministry. Because where are they now? They're nowhere to be found. Massive crowds. 5,000, 10,000, 20,000. Nowhere to be found. You got a small 120 person gathering. Where are the crowds? Why can they not be found? Because now following Jesus will actually cost them something, even possibly their lives. See, the crowds had no problem following Jesus as they benefited from his miracles. Enjoyed listening to his teachings. Being a part of the crowd had become the thing to do. It was the show that was in town. It was the great attraction everyone wanted to get a glimpse of. Right up until the cross came into view. And then the crowds were gone other than the mob that was crying out, crucify him. It teaches us what? 
that a crowd is not the same thing as a church. Crowds will come and crowds will go. And they'll likely get a lot of attention when they come, won't they? There's something interesting about a crowd. But again, a crowd isn't a church. Christ didn't come to redeem the crowds, but the church. He didn't send his spirit to empower the crowds, but the church. A local church being a group of baptized believers who regularly gather in Christ's name to to care for one another, to pray together, sit under the preaching of God's word together, partake of the Lord's Supper together, and faithfully obey Christ's command to go make disciples of all nations together. And friends, a crowd cannot do this, nor can the person or persons who neglect to to gather with the local church on a regular basis. None of this can happen as God intends if, if we don't see one another, but, well, ever so often. Which is why I believe this book will force us as a church to, to seriously consider those whom we continue to count among our number. Force us to honestly ask, how can we consider someone a member of this church body? if they rarely, if ever, gather with this church in faithful community. If we never see them. This book will also force us to think carefully about what we do in order to increase our number. Yes, we want to grow. I pray that we grow. We want to see people come to faith in Christ. And I want to see people come to faith in Christ in great number. But will we be content to faithfully plant and faithfully water and patiently wait for God to give the growth? Caring more about the church health and faithfulness to God's word than church size. But now in saying that, please don't hear me saying boring and inactive. Because I believe we can have exciting and fun and purposeful ministries and still be a healthy church. In fact, I believe we must. But it's a test in patient waiting, for sure, isn't it? When God doesn't bring us what we desire as quickly as we desire. Number three, they devoted themselves to prayer with one accord. Look with me again at verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. I love how it says with one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer. Meaning they were unified in their prayer. Praying collectively with the same heart for the same thing. And here's what I also love about this from a perspective point. When they left this room the night before Jesus' death, after partaking of the Lord's Supper, do you remember where they went to? Jesus took them over to the Mount of Olives, a thousand yards or so away. Where they, Jesus took them there to do what? Pray. Jesus asking his disciples, telling his disciples, we're going to pray. 
And what do they do while Jesus prays? They fall asleep. Remember? They fall asleep while Jesus prays. But now here, they've returned to the Mount of Olives, from the Mount, from the Mount of Olives, to the upper room after Jesus' ascension. And they're doing what? They're praying. They're praying. They're not asleep. <laughs> they're, they're praying. They're doing what Jesus taught them to do. They're praying for the Father's will to be done. They're praying for the Father's promise to come. They're praying for his kingdom to come. And they're doing so in what? One accord. And I find this immensely occur encouraging, both as a parent and as a pastor. And here's why. Ever feel like you're teaching your children, what you're teaching your children is not getting through? And in fairness, children, you ever feel like what you're saying to your parents or what you're maybe trying to teach your parents is just not getting through? It's not connecting? It'd be better off if it was like talking to a brick wall? Ever feel that way? Any of us? <laughs> yeah? We all do at times. Pastors feel the same way at times. Prepare a sermon. Pray for the people to receive the sermon. Preach the sermon. No idea how the Lord is using it. Completely no idea how the Lord is, is using it. Easy to go home on any given Sunday and be like, I am a complete failure. I, I, I might as well, like, just go mow my yard because I can mow my yard and I can see a visible result. There it is. Not true with preaching. Not true with teaching. Not true with parenting. Not true with many of our prayers, right? We can't see an immediate result. Think how long people have been praying for Roe v. Wade to be overturned. But then right when you think you're the biggest parenting failure, or I might just quit the pastor and go into the lawn care business, right then in that moment, we see nuggets of truth coming forward. We hear a child's prayer. We see application of what we've been teaching them. You hear someone telling you of how they're sharing their faith with someone else, and you're like, yes, yes. Hear stories of life change. Like, yes, thank you, Lord. I have no idea how you used that sermon. I thought it was horrible. But you, oh, Lord, you did this. That's what we have here. These 11 look like the bad news bears while they walk with Jesus on this earth. If you don't know what the bad news bears is, you can go look it up. They look like a bunch of ragamuffins who just don't get it. So many things that they did and said that any parent or pastor would go, I am a complete failure. This bunch of guys, what? and they're followers of Jesus. Can't get a better teacher than Jesus. And now Jesus is gone. And what are they doing? Everything told and taught them to do in one accord. I picture Jesus looking down on them at this point with a little smile being like, there you go. 
there you go. And you ain't seen nothing yet because the Spirit's coming. <laughs> Which is why I find this so deeply encouraging as both a parent and as a pastor. It's a good reminder to remain persistent in what the Lord has called us to do. And patiently wait for Him to bring the results to our prayers and our efforts in His timing. It's also another good reminder of why it's so important for us to gather together, to be connected as a church, so that we can pray with one accord. Because this can't happen if we are not gathering with the church on a regular basis. See, this small group here in Jerusalem is in one accord because they're going through all of this together. They're sharing their fears and failures and joys and thoughts together. You can't be in one accord or, or counted among a people that you never see. This is why outside of uh, our weekly Sunday service, we're going to be placing a much higher emphasis on our connect groups going forward. Groups that we have revamped to intentionally emphasize coming together in one accord, specifically through fellowship and, and prayer. Each of our, our groups, either already starting or starting in this fall, to, to meet the very first week of, of the, every month to fellowship and to pray together. And then meeting as those groups desire, whether individually or collectively throughout the month, to continue to do those things and encourage one another in Christ. And if you're a covenant member of this church, you've already been connected to one of our five current groups. If you don't know which one that you are connected to or a part of, um, then your connect group leader or your elder will be reaching out to you soon. And if you're not a member of this body presently or a part of one of these groups, but would like to be as you prayerfully consider covenanting and joining with this body, then we would be happy to, to plug you in as we're able to, as soon as we're able. And we'll be providing more information on this in the days ahead. But number four, they were led by the authority of the scriptures. So picking up in verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. He became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to, to dwell in it, and let another take his place. So what does Peter acknowledge about the scriptures here? One, that they had to be fulfilled. Just as Jesus had taught them over and over and over again, 
Peter, now understanding, because Jesus had opened their minds to understand the scriptures, that all of scripture was pointing to Jesus and all scripture had to be fulfilled. He also understood that the scriptures came from the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that they're now waiting upon to come to indwell them, they're now relying upon to guide them through the scriptures that he himself inspired. So now as they're waiting for the Spirit, they're going to the scriptures inspired by the Spirit to guide them as they wait for the Spirit. They're not going rogue. They're not doing this on their own. And the scripture Peter quotes here, says, come, he says, comes from who? Again, he says, from the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of David. Verses he associates with who? Judas, the betrayer. And, and just a note before we look at the text that Peter uses, Judas is a prime example of someone looking the part on the outside. So claiming to be a Christian, maybe looking like they're a Christian for a period of time, claiming to follow Jesus, but doing so for all the wrong motives. He was a part of the crowd, but he was never a part of the church. Same thing existing today. Those who may be among the church, but not really a part of the church. Not willing to, to get plugged in, not willing to, to covenant, not willing to gather and intimately be and hold one another accountable. Not really loving Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Just what they can get out of it. Which is why verse 25, when Judas turned aside, when he betrayed Jesus, he went to his own place. An early church euphemism for, for where one ends up after death. Which infers Judas went somewhere other than where the, other, the 11 will go. He's gone to face judgment, the judgment of God in hell forever. As will everyone who doesn't faithfully follow Christ. And thus Peter's use of Psalm 69, verse 25, to say, May his camp be desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. As the theme of Psalm 69 is the psalmist crying out to be saved from his enemies by God, bringing judgment upon his enemies. Asking for, for their camp to be left desolate and unable to be used which is exactly what occurs with the field in which Judas died. It's left only to be used, as Matthew tells us, as a cemetery. It's a field of blood. All the result of Judas's betrayal. And then Peter uses Psalm 109, verse 8, to say, let another take his office. Judas having vacated his, his office through his betrayal, leaving it open for another to fill. Now, of course, the question here should be, why let another take his office anyway? Why not just leave it vacant? Well, the answer, to restore the 12 before Pentecost occurs. As it will be the 12 apostles, who we talked about earlier, who will one day judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus teaching them this in, in Luke chapter 22, verses 28 through 30. 
while in that upper room. And in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, when Jesus said, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. See, Judas wasn't replaced simply because he died, but because of his betrayal. And because his office was vacant as the result of a betrayal, his seat on the future throne had to be fulfilled, representing the, the, the church, the, the 12 apostles representing the church as a whole. This was eschatological, this is end times fulfillment, the new Israel being formed. But see, in Acts chapter 12, James, the son of Zebedee, will also die. So he's not the only apostle that ever, will ever die. We're going to see just in Acts chapter 12, James, the son of Zebedee, that is James or Peter, James, and John, one of the inner three, he's going to die. But guess what? There's no mention of when he dies. There's no mention of his replacement. There is no replacement. And that's the case for each and every one of the apostles. As they die, so does the office of apostle with them. No one takes their place to keep the apostolic office going in perpetuity. Meaning the office of apostles ceased with the death of the last apostle. As such, it's an office that no longer exists today within the church. So the use of the word today or use of the title today is unhelpful at best and dangerously misleading at worst. But what we see from these apostles and believers is their willingness and desire to let the scripture lead them, to embrace and begin to understand all that Jesus taught them. And not as mere students of the word, but as doers of the word. They're not just sitting back in a Bible study taking it all in. They're putting it into action. They're living it out in their life. They're allowing the Holy Spirit through God's word to guide them with their decision making. And of course the question for us is, are we? Are we doing this individually? Are we doing this collectively? Continually letting the scripture guide us. Which leads us to number five. They put forward two to complete the twelve. So we're looking to replace Judas to complete the 12. I can't just pick one. I can't be like, hey, you come here. Why don't you just serve in his spot? No, the, the person has to meet very specific qualifications. As we see in verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. So what are the qualifications that we see listed to be considered one of these twelve? Had to be a man who was accompanied, who accompanied the other apostles all the time that, that Jesus the Lord Jesus went out in and out among them. So from the time of John's baptism and the start of Jesus' earthly ministry until the day that he ascended into heaven, having been a witness to the resurrected Christ. All of this had to be there for them to be considered. 
which is another reason why this office ceased to exist with the death of the last apostle. No one could, could, could or can meet these qualifications. That's why Paul, in writing to Timothy, didn't tell him to appoint apostles, but to appoint elders to lead the churches. And that's where the application comes in for us today. The scripture is providing very specific qualifications for who can hold the two biblical offices that are found within the church. The office of elder or pastor, elder, pastor being synonymous with one another, and the office of deacon. And it's our responsibility as the church to affirm only those who meet these qualifications to serve within these offices. Qualifications, I pray, when we look at them, that all of us will be striving for as we're able to meet them. We'll have time to talk more about this in the months ahead. But with the qualifications in hand, this small group of believers put forward two qualified men to fill the office left vacant by Judas. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they did what? Number six, they prayed for the Lord's will to be done. As we see in verse 24, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the heart of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in, the, in his ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go into his own place. Major decision to be made. What do they do? They prayed. The collection of 120 persons prayed in hearts of one accord for the Lord's will to be done. So just as Jesus had chosen the original 12, they were calling on the Lord to choose Judas's replacement. Why? Because number seven, they believed the decision belonged to God. Which means there was no campaigning for this position. No arguing about who would be the greatest anymore. Rather, verse 26, and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. These lots likely being some rock or, or bone or something of the sort placed in a bag. Either their name or a sign marking out who, who would be identified to identify each of these two men. And after praying, they, they drew one of them out and form a, a decision making, from a decision we see making, uh, being used to make decisions multiple times throughout the Old Testament, this decision-making process of casting lots. Even in the Gospels, we see this taking place from time to time, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But in the good ways, it was seen as a, as a means of leaving the decisions up to God. But it appears the use of lots for, for making decisions was in the church. It ended after the coming of the Holy Spirit. As the next time we have selections made for various offices or roles or decisions within the church, as we look through the book of Acts, they're made through intentional discernment, intentional prayer, looking to the scriptures. There's no mention of casting lots, which means it's not a pattern that we should continue to follow today. Rather, when we have big decisions to make individually or as a church, we're to look to the scriptures, we're to pray, and we're to use biblical discernment to make our decisions. 
But now within the biblical narrative that we're following along in, we're now on the cusp of a new era. This soon-to-be church in, in Jerusalem is patiently waiting for the Spirit to come. And why they wait, what do they not do? They don't sit idle. They obediently do what Jesus taught them to do. They devote themselves to prayer. They are led by the scriptures. They replace Judas with someone who is qualified to take his place. And they wait, trusting for the Lord's will to be done. And my prayer is that we may be proven to be just as faithful as we wait upon the Lord's timing. Now, not for the Spirit to come, because He already has come, but for Christ to return, because He promises He will. And until He does, let us not be idle, but faithfully obedient to His commands to, from the Scriptures as we wait. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, as we come in response to your word, Lord, help us to be a patient people. It can be so difficult to wait, especially for good and right things that we're longing for to come and to happen. Maybe it's a loved one that we're desperately praying will come to faith in Christ. A friend, a neighbor, peoples across the world, that they would know Christ. And it's hard to wait. But Lord, may we continue to be faithful. Even in the midst of op opposition, when those who want to push against us and your views from your word help us not to respond with anger, but with love and with grace and patience. Not being snarky in our response, but winsome and loving and kind, pointing people over and over and over to Christ. May we faithfully plant, may we faithfully water, and may we continue to wait for you and you alone to give the growth. Help us to wait well. In Jesus' name we pray.